0: I'm Levi Morgan, and you're listening to the Manimal Mindset Podcast. All right, you know what's kind of sad about this whole podcast thing, though? This room? Is this Micah's old office? <laughs> a lot of memories made in here. Yeah, I mean, a lot. every Bow Life show for the last six years was made in this room. God, we're talking about him like he's dead. Yeah. R.I.P. He was a good guy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he would tried hard. <clears throat> How's that evolved? Was he was he the original or did he come into it as you all got into the seasons we for bow life really he was
0: uh maybe not you know he's always worked with us Mm -hmm. since because he got in a lot of trouble in high school yeah and so it was kind of his like dad one day was just like hey you're coming with me to kansas to film because he was (laughs) expelled from school and so uh that's kind of how he started and then ever since then he just had a ton of potential like creative and just never went to school for it or anything and then just kind of just every year kept stepping it up until i think it was like our first or second season of bow life he was um roughing all the shows editing yeah and then we were getting them polished by a guy named jameson crass and then it was just like hey it's time for you to take over everything you know yeah. and then once that happened, we kind of did a podcast with him the other day about some of that stuff. It, it like really put a strain on mine his relationship. Like we got in the biggest fight we ever got in, argument. Like he quit, walked out, cussed me out. And it was just like so much responsibility for him. Yeah. But then like once he like did it and realized he could do it, he just like exploded. Just
1: you know, I think that I I do hold the belief that every person is born with like a gift inside of them, like truly you don't find it, it. not yeah. everybody finds it but I mean you watch some of these guys that have complete deranged mental illness but they can play Beethoven right by, by ear yeah. you know and I'm the same way you give me boredom and I'll show you a handful of trouble like I, if, if I'm bored I'm in trouble that's right. the truth yeah so like for me I relate a lot to Micah you know we yeah. talked about that in Texas too is you know, until I started finding things that I could go down the rabbit hole on and keep me interested in, even yeah. at like the smallest level, dude, I was my own worst enemy. Right? You know, because my brain just goes too fast. I try to tell people the way my brain works is like three concentric circles, and if I have a memory, it turns into a movie trailer in my head. Gotcha. It's not like I remember exactly what happened, what was said. It's like I see a movie trailer the whole day. Like the Texas trip, when I see that, I remember where I was when he called me. And then the phone conversation we had when I was in the garage. And then it just plays into, like, when you pick me up in the van, when we went to the, you know, the, uh, what's it called, Whataburger. Yeah. Like, all that just plays, like, in a little, it's like there's a little melody, but that's the way It's That's I pretty s- cool, though. But that's how my brain works, is it, and, but then the problem is, that becomes the center circle, and then the other two just go a thousand directions, because it's like... Right. The, well, I shot those tack arrows. Well, What was the weight on those? What was it? And so it's I'm all over the place. But when I could bring it down to like jujitsu, where the only thing you can think about is not getting killed, right? I'm good. When I'm building an arrow or trying to watch an arrow fly, I'm good. Right. So I need those things that are like hyper real meticulous, right. Because that's the only thing that kind of balances me out. See, that's what's
2: funny because I'm I'm the opposite, and I'm sure you've seen. Like I I cannot operate down in the weeds. Like I have to stay above. Like once I start getting the deeper I go, the, I feel like
1: I just stop operating efficiently. Well, I'll, I'll definitely tell you, I mean, it is certainly a gift and a curse. Like yeah. I can keep going down a rabbit hole to my own demise too. Right. So I've had to learn and check and balance with myself, a lot of that stuff. But you know, now my habits tend to be a little bit more a little healthier choices on things, you know, a little little smarter choices on things. So, but yeah, my brain still operates that same way. So when I, when I see people or hear about people that like, they got in trouble till they found that thing. And mm-hmm. It was like lightning. Yeah, I mean, I I just relate to that instantly because yeah. I'm the same way.
0: Yeah, Michael was uh, like he was just a talented individual, and and like he he's was good at, good at every. At he did a lot of
1: things, like sports. He was
0: very athletic. He was like unbelievable running back. Great baseball player. Snowboarding, snowboarding dirt snowboarding. But like he just never had that thing. It was just like he was kind of like searching for it. I think. You, you know? think stuff was too easy. It did come easy for him. He was fast and like, um, just a really tough kid, but he just couldn't handle Micah, couldn't handle like any adversity. Like, he just would just very like angry at Mm -hmm. it, right? Like, and I'm not, and I think he's kind of channeled that into being great at other things too, but like, he would just fight all the time, like, Mm -hmm. every week he was beat, you know, fighting and just, and so it was like, man. You know, I was worried about him because he's my little brother, you know. And I always had, like, even growing up, I had this fear for Micah. Like, I always feel like I was, I would wake up in the middle of the night in a panic, when, even when we were kids, like Landon and Jackson's age. And I would go check and make sure he was still breathing. Like, I had nightmares about my little brother, you know, growing up. Like, I was, just had to protect him or something. And then once you get so old, you can't do that anymore. It's like he's a, <laughs> he's a grown man, and it's like you yeah. can't protect him, you know. And so to see him kind of take this and really make a great name for himself and just be the best I've seen it like creative stuff it's like ah cool you know
1: yeah well I mean I think anger you know was probably probably my biggest driver right throughout my powerlifting career you know and Louis Simmons told me one time he's like you don't see happy people getting under 1100 pound bar yeah you know and there's a lot of truth to that and and most of that is true of any passion at a deep level is like yeah The the happy people are few and far between. That's why I admire you so much, man. It's like, I mean, my perception of you is that you're real. You're always happy. You talk about your wife, talk about Mm -hmm. your kids, talk about your family. Like, you got it all, man. Like, so I I admire that about you.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, and it's like I am happy. I I have so much to be thankful for. Very blessed, and um, I'm not an angry person in general, you know. But that's I mean,
1: counter to so many people in the industry, people yeah. that'll, that'll snake oil sell you on anything. Right. But then when you really meet them, they're just bitter or right, angry yeah. or finger pointing or whatever. Right. I'm not, you know, it's not any one person. It's, it's just, there's a, there's a wave of those right, people, yeah. you know? So it's for me and I'm sure for everybody sitting at this right. table as you've navigated the industry. You know, most of the people got a chip on their shoulder yeah. and that's how I wasn't powerless. <clears throat> right. I was very much, I got to prove everything to everybody. Mm-hmm. I want to grab every dollar that I can grab. Yeah. And that, that kind of stuff broke me down. Well, let's,
2: let's back up and talk. How did, how did you even, like the powerlifting thing? Were you, was it like sports and lifting for sports in
1: high school and all of that? So and that kind that, of transition? That's probably or? the coolest story of all. Okay. And I think it's a story that's real important, especially in today's time is uh i mean this ties exactly into what we're talking about i'm switched schools because i was a really good soccer player and i'd been talking to uh, a couple colleges and everything i kept hearing i was a single a school right they say you need to play in a bigger market or you need to play for like a like a select team or something like that right so even still went through my junior year And uh, after that soccer season, I realized nobody's going to give me a shot. I had a really good junior year. Nobody cared, you know, because it was the school. So across town, we've got a bigger school, and uh, I ended up switching over there. They had better college curriculum. They were closer to my house. There was multiple advantages, but I didn't move residents. And right as this, pa- the ink was drying on the paperwork, Kentucky, the KHSAA, uh, installed a law on a recruitment because of Lexington Catholic, they were notorious for bringing it. Well, this kid's just moved here from Georgia and he's six, eight and, you know, yeah. can dunk it from the free throw line, right. you know, right. good, you know, whatever. So this law or rule was kind of implemented for some of that stuff. And I was like the only kid caught in the wake of it. There were four other kids that transferred after I did that got granted to play without moving residents, but I did not. So my senior year going into my senior year, new school, To go play sports, to get into college, and now I can't play sports. Well, I don't give a crap about school now, right? So I start getting in trouble, starts cutting school. Just, I mean, just boys will be boys stuff. It wasn't like malicious stuff. We used to have those ID tags and I had a goal of stealing every single person's ID tag. So I put them in those baseball sleeves, you know, like the nine-card baseball yeah. card sleeves. I had, I had everybody... Opens up the, th- the three-ring binder, and it's oh, just dude, ID no, card. Oh, dude, I'm no, I'm not lying. I, so I collected baseball cards hardcore. Like, I had... Uh, so I started with uh, Sean Kemp. Yeah. I started with his cards, because I just... Along the way, some card shop had like 50 cards of Sean Kemp for 50 cents. Yeah. So I started that. Well, I ended up with like 3,000 Sean Kemp cards. Oh, wow. Well, I traded those for like 7,000 Dennis Rodman cards. (laughs) And then I ended up with 10,000 some odd cards of Dennis Rodman and so on and so forth. So long story short, I got real heavy into basketball, baseball, all that stuff kind of cards and memorabilia when I was a kid. So I had those binders. And of course my brain works that way so i'm just sticking all these ids that i'm ripping <laughs> off kids and i mean there's i don't know 600 700 kids in the in the school and i had damn near every one of them up to the vice principal so, so when you when you put in that paperwork did did you even go to the new school or you stayed at no i most? went to the new school okay and that was the problem is that i, I could have kind of pulled out uh, but i was you know i'm too stubborn to do that my parents yeah. were like oh you should probably just stay and i'm like hell no i've yeah. made my mind up on am going Again, better or worse. That's, that's always been my mindset. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I get, I get in trouble for something over that because they finally found out who was doing it. Ended up, the last thing that was the kind of the, I guess the straw on the camel's back, we had these electronic clocks that hung out from the wall and they just stuck out in digital time. And I walked out of class one day and I was just mad for no reason or a thousand reasons. I just went straight up overhead and went wham and pulled it. Well, it shut them all down. The whole entire school. Fire alarm goes off because it was on the same electrical circuit board. So that was it. And I had this teacher, Mr. Lynch, amazing, amazing man. He was a history teacher, kind of a world sieve kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So he pulls me aside and he said, Lily, Lily, you know, he's a big defensive end kind of guy, football coach. He said, what is going on with you, man? Like, what is wrong with you? You're better than this. And like, nobody talked to me like that. You know what I mean? My dad's awesome dude. Up at four thirty, like up four o'clock, out by four thirty, home at eight o'clock. He wasn't a bad dad. He just right. tired. You yeah. know what I mean. So I got this man. Like I've always been really, really connected to my coaches. Mm-hmm. I think I, as a man, I was looking for that leadership, for that, sure. that role. Yeah. So when my coach says run through a wall, I'm like, I'll run through ten of them for you, coach. You know, yeah. they gave us steak dinners for the most per- People with the most. Uh, floor burns so I was into that like I wanted to be that kid and I was I was 100% like all effort 100% effort kid like overachiever whatever whatever that award was that was me mm-hmm. and that's the only thing my dad ever told me he was like that's all you can control is what you give so that that was personal yeah so anyway Mr. Lynch is like you're better than this man what's going on with you and I started telling him he's like meet me after school three o'clock over at the gym I'm like all right so i show up in there and he just starts working out a little bit he puts me on this chest press it's like one of those ones where you stand up and you can just it's kind of like a standing bench press yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so he puts me on that literally no weight whatsoever he's like just keep pressing it while i'm talking to you he's like it doesn't feel like that much does it no it doesn't feel like anything So he keeps talking he said just keep pressing it keep pressing it and it just got harder and harder the longer we went but he kept asking me he's like Why are you so mad? Who hurt your feelings? Who pissed you off? Like all this like silly stuff. But as I was physically hurting, started emotionally coming out, started tearing up, talking, and like all of this stuff came out. And he said, no, stop. He said, give me a hug. He said, that's then. All of this is forward. From today, forward. He said, meet me here tomorrow. So we started lifting. And it was cool. And he was like, you want to go fishing? yeah. So we go fishing at his house, have dinner with his wife and kids. And the reason I say that is because it probably changed the direction of my life. Right. You know, a teacher that gave a crap to take a kid that they knew they couldn't impact in school, took me fishing, fed me, like taught me how to cook a steak, like stuff like that. I mean, people run at that stuff now. They're like, oh, he's grooming, he's grooming, he's grooming. Finest human being ever because he's done it for me and done it for other people. Yeah. And that stuff is being lost. You know, and I—I I don't know where I would be without Mister Lynch. Yeah, like I'm, my legs are shaking right now talking about him because I don't right. know where I'd be yeah. without that man. So, it—you uh, see it. I'm, I'm, yeah. So you kind of
2: viewed him as a father figure a little bit, not that your dad well, wasn't there. No, but you...
1: and very much so. And I'll tell you what, when I walked across the uh, when I walked across the stage at graduation, you know, he hugged me and he said, "I'm proud of you and I love you." And my dad, you know, kind of that old school generation when he's fussing at us or something, he'd be like, Oh, well, you know, you." your mom loves you. And, you know, we're, we're all proud of you. You know, he could he just couldn't say it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, felt it, but couldn't say it. So this was like, what, you know, but it was the right thing for him to say. And he hugged me and I believed it. Yeah. And, you know, through my life, even when I was off track, I always thought about that man as like, I want to impact people like that. Yeah. And I've never forgotten that. And even, like I said, when my compass has been off, he's always been one of those guys that it was like, man, he wouldn't be proud of this right now. Right, yeah. You know, so I think uh, that was really the genesis of it. Like, that was just what started me lifting because it was all I had. I had no other sport outlet. I had no other, like, real friend group. I had friends. But, you know, when you go to school, one school for 10, 11 years of your life and you go over to the school your senior year, well, you ain't getting into the Cool Kids Club, you know. Right. So. It wasn't a bad transition. It was just difficult mm-hmm. for many reasons. And uh, after that, I ended up getting to throw uh shot put and hammer in college. And that just kind of furthered the lifting bug. Yeah. I started doing some competitions and whatnot. So really, I guess it was my sophomore year, I just didn't want to throw anymore. I just wanted to lift weights and compete and wanted to do bodybuilding but to me, it was so subjective. Like You show up peeled, shredded, and they're like, well, you need to be a little bigger, eat more carbs. Well, you come in a little bigger and eat more carbs. They're like, well, you need to be shredded. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to beat people head to head. And like I said, I was angry. Like all, God. And I didn't realize this. A lot of this stuff was just holding on to anger. I was going to say, so
2: at this time, did you think you would kind of let go of, of some of um, that anger? Or did you know maybe like deep down that you were still holding on to it. Like I know you you, having these conversations with this guy and getting
1: into it probably felt some relief, but it's funny, man. I think people like myself included, we get real proud of ourselves too quickly. You know, like, Oh man, I've made some choices here that are good. I've made some better decisions and you stop checking yourself. Mm -hmm. And that was always me. You know what I mean? Like I was, I was doing the right things, but I wasn't always doing the right things. And then I'd have to check myself and come back and come back around or whatever. So does that answer your question. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, so I just I kind of get to the point where I'm doing okay. I don't need to focus on this right. stuff. Backslide right again. Yeah. So that progressed into uh, into leaving the shot put and the hammer. Just I didn't have time for it. Didn't have desire for it. Started competing in powerlifting and did really really well right off the jump. My first competition was great. Um, you know, and and from there it just kind of became an accelerated hobby. Like I wasn't making money at it. I was working a full-time job, just got married, new baby, new house, great job. You know, everything was good. And then, you know, 08, 09 hit when that recession came. Yeah. And dude, I'm telling you, it went from brand new house, brand new vehicles, brand new baby, everything's fine, to just like (laughs) annihilation, right? Everything for me fell out. So that just led to lost my job, you know, tried to make ends meet a thousand different ways honest, and it was really easy to get dishonest. You know, I could, I could make money doing a number of things. So that was, that was the path I chose, and it wasn't from being in a place where those were the decisions I needed to make. I failed to tell the people around me, those that love me, that I'd even lost my job. Yeah, because my dad was always like, "A man without a job ain't worth nothing." Right. Yeah. And they don't. Mm-hmm. They won't let you go if you're worth something and you're doing your job. Yeah. You know, but my company was actually dissolving. Right. So I didn't know that, but I took that on my chest. Like, man, I'm just, I'm worthless here. Like, I don't, right. I can't even hold a job. So I kind of hustled around and tried to make ends meet. Like I said you can't cover yourself for that long you yeah. know? and it went month after month after month and I was killing myself like I was detailing cars cutting wood and still acting like I was working at my other job like oh I see you know it wasn't good and I was trying to hide it so you know that just became a lot on everybody involved and like I said I kind of just went further into that um, as far as just like making poor choices but I, then I get a phone call and I'd done a couple powerlifting meets in between and done pretty well. So Louis Simmons calls, and he was like, "I saw your last meet. You did really good. Good to see you. you look big. Look strong. Have you ever thought about coming up here to train with us at Westside Barbell in Columbus, Ohio?" And I was like, well, "No, I haven't." He's like, "I dreamed of you guys. Like I, I've looked at all your stuff, and I know every number in the gym. But like I never thought I'd be there." He said, "Well, why don't you come up and try it out?" So four days a week, three days a week, more honestly probably, but definitely there were times of four days a week. Me and another guy named Jake, we would get together at two o'clock in the morning in central Kentucky, drive three, three and a half hours to Columbus, get to the Bob Evans off of, uh, Broad Street, eat breakfast with Louie, go train at eight, train till 10, eat subway on the way out and get back in time for work. We did that four days a week for months. How old were you? God, 27, 28 at this time. This is 2009, born in 80. So I'm yeah. 26, 27. Yeah. And, uh you know, I was just, I've heard other people talk about that kind of stuff. Like just that blind obsession. Mm -hmm. I I didn't know why I was going, but like whatever was inside of me was telling me you got to go, you know what I mean? So I just kept going, just kept going and finally got an invite. And, uh, that's, that's when I moved to Columbus. And again, that was, that was the best thing for my powerlifting, but it just furthered me from anything that was good in my life. So you still married at that point? Yeah. And, uh, this was that was the hardship is it was like trying to split it up over two cities and then that just dissolved out you know it just uh just did not there's just no way to do that yeah. you know because the demand of competition i mean imagine you know you've got to be let's say somewhere else besides here just so you can train yeah you know well you can't you can't make that work yeah, hey I mean, i'll be home every weekend i'll be home this yeah. you do Mm-hmm. And then you don't.
0: Well, it's hard enough just traveling for work. Yeah. It's strain on a marriage strain on a re- any relationship.
1: Yeah. And then you're, t- you're throwing in, you know, that's four or five days a week, mm-hmm. you know, well, I'll, yeah. we'll be home on the weekend. Well, you can just imagine, Hey, we got a powerlifting meet this weekend. Well, then you're the next week. And yeah, well, we got this team meeting Saturday night. So yeah. it just, it just spiraled. And it really, it, you know, it kind of unraveled honestly and organically. Um, and that's, that's just a terrible thing for anybody to go through, but it just pushed me further. Right. Yeah. Because it's like, I want to prove everybody wrong. I want to prove everybody that doubted me, said I shouldn't do this, said I couldn't do this. So, back to my point, I think a lot of people like myself that use a negative motivator, well, man, when you don't have that, you generate it. Mm-hmm. You force yourself into them. Like somebody said something about loving what they do. You know, like, well, if I loved training, I don't have to get mad about it. Like I'm happy as can be doing what I love. I never loved training. Yeah, I hated it. Really, I hated it. I love getting my hand raised. I love being mm-hmm. like square to like square with somebody that should beat me and beating them. Yeah, that was that was me the whole time. Like I was never a world record holder. I was never a guy that was like pushing the envelope of what was possible. I was a guy that would show up and have a strategy and lift to my potential, not leave anything off
0: off
2: the table so when you were going through that process like what was your mental like state like when you're going into training going you said strategy Mm -hmm. i think a lot of people like i I go to work out and it's like my strategy is either to look good or lose weight or get ready for the (laughs) season right um obviously this is a whole different ball game
1: so like what is that well if you can just imagine you know roughly when you get to a certain level it's true of any sport you know your competition starts to know who you are and you start to know who your competition is so if i see a guy Let's just say, you know, Dan Green. He was a guy that I really got to know well and competed with and and really respect in the sport of powerlifting. You know, he was a 242-pound lifter, and he had like an 850, 863 squat, something like that. So I knew on his best day, and expecting him to be slightly better than that, 860 is what I have to think about for Dan. Mm -hmm. His bench was, you know, 520s, 530s. So maybe plus 10 pounds on that this meet. So you just kind of start to build an equation of what your competition is going to do, right? what they're capable of, and then what you can do in the face of that. And for me, the thing that kind of put me on the map, so Mark Bell, uh, super training, yeah. you know, he had a meet called the Backyard Meet of the Century, and it was an invite-only meet. And I had actually just, I was one of the first guys to go from geared powerlifting where you wear like a bench shirt and mm-hmm. squat suit and they're supportive. They they give you assistance on your lift. So if you ever see somebody say they benched 800 pounds, I officially benched 832 pounds in competition, but that was in a bench shirt. You know, so there are people that do that. But if they tell you that their cousin just did it down at the farm, like total lie. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for me, I did bench 600 pounds raw. Um, you know, that was one of my personal highlights and everything. But so for me... You know, I was competing in one competition against all the geared guys raw. And I put up the best total of my life and finished, like, high amongst guys that were lifting in assistance gear raw, just in a belt and sleeves and, and wraps. So, I hit Mark Bell up, and I was like, hey, man, like, give me a shot at your meet. He said, well, you're coming for last place. And I was like, yeah, I am. But I said, I, I think I can compete with those guys. And he said, well, if, you know, you get out here, you can compete. So, I did. And, uh, I just, I believed in myself like completely. I I knew that all eyes on the sport were on that event or, you know, roughly. It was a big one. I thought if I can just go out there and show myself well and represent myself well, I'll be okay. Well, more than that, I kind of started breaking down some of the numbers and it was like, these guys, there's one guy in particular was notorious for taking really big jumps. So I was like, if he misses one lift. He can't beat me if I'm perfect, so that eliminated him as a competition because I was staying like conservative, right? It's like if you need a a ten or you need an eight, you don't shoot at the twelve; you just shoot the ten and secure your eight, right? That
0: was me. So, but real quick, so I understand this. So in these meets, it's not individual lifts separately it's like your total lift of your total
1: like some guys get really wrapped up in like, i'm the squat king or i'm right. the bench king or i'm the deadlift king and those things have individual like recognition and yeah. some competitions like biggest squat gets 500 dollars, mm. whatever but yeah i was a i was a total focus guy like right. i i didn't care i did but i didn't individually care about each lift more than the next right and my standout lift was the bench press like where guys were eight 900 pound squatters eight mid eight, 900 pound pullers, a lot of those guys, because they had such long arms and I'm not saying all, but they had longer arms that gave them advantage in the deadlift or it gave them, you know, they had some reason that they had advantage in the squat. Um, they lost that advantage in the bench press. So for whatever reason, I made up a lot of ground on the bench press. Like a lot of guys were benching five, 25, I was benching right around 580, 600. My squat, where a lot of guys were squatting 860, 880, 900, I was squatting 830, 840, you know, so I could stay in the hunt. And then down to the deadlift, it was like, well, who's going to jump too high? Who's going to play it safe? And who's going to do all this? So ended up, uh, it comes down to I'm, I'm in the final and it's me and another guy. So my first ever 800-pound deadlift in competition is on the line. A 1,000 kilo total is on the line and the win is on the line. And, and This is at Mark Bell's tournament. This is at Mark Bell's tournament. It's the that. one that told you you were fighting for last place, fighting for last place, fighting yeah. for last place. So I showed up, and it's me and another guy down to the last lift. And it's one of those things, um, you know, when, when you get into kilograms or you get into meters, it's a little bit different. So the actual conversion comes down to seven ninety nine point seven, or eight oh four point seven as as the jumps that you can take. So I'd had some some people say I'd never deadlift eight hundred. And I knew if I pulled 799.7, I would never have pulled. You know, that wouldn't have been 800 Mm -hmm. in their mind. And it wouldn't have been in mine because they they were betting against me. So I would have known exactly what I pulled. So it was 804.7. So this is like, I'm in, I'm in old crap land now because this is like, (laughs) 800 was going to be like mentally and through a mental block. Well, in my training, too, one, it's your first, right? It's the first time you're pulling. And this is like, 800 is where I started separating the the men from the boys right so that was on the line like all this other stuff and it's like holy crap and i looked out and it was like i had done a big meet but this was like the first real time that i knew the internet was making the sport different Mm -hmm. it was like every camera every person with the phone everything like this but dude it juiced me up i was like let's go so i pulled it talked a lot of trash as I was walking off and everything. Uh, and that, that was what really put me on the map in powerlifting. And for a number of years, two or three years, it was just meteoric. Like everything I did was bigger, better, stronger. I was one of the few guys that was kind of talking. I mean, as you can tell, I talked on stop, but I was talking about my lifting, sharing what I was thinking, sharing what I was doing. So I kind of showed my hand a little bit and you know, that was, People appreciated it. So it yeah. just kind of helped my star rise a little bit. Did but you like, and Mark have words after that? No, no. Mark was really. Not bad words, but like were you like. Hey. I'll, I'll give him credit. In that moment, he came over and he, he he actually like the minute he recognized me as the winner, he was like, I never thought the hick from Paint Lick would come out here. and win this, awesome. thing. You know, but he was like, he sure did. He came out here and put on a show, like give him a hand, blah, blah, blah. So it was like, I knew that it wasn't a mean mm-hmm. shot because Mark's right. just a, a shit talker. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But to me, dude, I put it on my rearview mirror in my truck. I put it in my mirror in my house. Like, everywhere I was, like, you're coming for last place. Mm -hmm. And, man, like, I don't go anywhere to give less than my best. And I will give you my best, but that's not last place. Like, that is the best I've got.
0: Well, that's the thing, dude. I I think that is – I love stuff like that. I love people telling me I can't do stuff. Mm -hmm. That's always been what really drove me, even what I do, you know. But that was one of the questions I had is in those meets when you're amped up and your adrenaline's flowing, do you, like one of the things I was wondering, and I think you kind of answered it is, so you lifted, normally you could go ahead and give guys more weight than what they normally lift when they're amped up and drilling. Mm-hmm. So it didn't actually, I was wondering if it would maybe affect their form or affect how well, they attack it or. It's
1: a, it's a fine line, man, you know, cause like. I don't know how much you guys have ever been in fights or done jujitsu or anything like that. But if you go like, if you get so amped up right. that you, you get the timing wrong on something, you, you're really messed up. Yeah. So I would see these guys and you see the videos all the time, like people slapping each other, smacking mm-hmm. each other in the face and doing the ammonia and whatnot. I listened to promontory from last, of the Mohicans in my headphones. Literally. I, I didn't hear my name called. I didn't hear the number they called. I just, I had a game plan. I gave it to a handler I didn't want to do anything. I, I listened to that song on repeat for nine, 10 hours a day. You know, the, the one with the violins mm-hmm. and the bass drum dude. And I used to, uh, that's a funny story about that that we can talk about later, but that right there, I can't listen to it unless it's real. Like I gotta be alone or it's gotta be real special. Really? That, Cause that song, dude, I get so amped up. Like I'm an emotional person. You saw how it was when I was talking about coach Lynch. Like when All I, right. when I hear that song, dude I'll, I'll eat faces like yeah. I, I just i just want to get <laughs> I, well, whatever i gotta do let's don't go. play
0: the song <laughs> <Don't>, okay <laughs> as it cues in right now nobody plays but it was like
1: that was one of those things that was kind of like the mental cue that this is game day yeah so i saved it for that yeah you know
2: did you all uh, so it's interesting like did you always have that like second gears we talk about we were talking about this morning of mm. like you're such a a gentle dude and just, like, you, you, you're kind of soft in a good way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but obviously you've got this, like, killer piece of you. Did you always have that gear and knew you
1: had it? Or was that something you kind of discovered? Like, how did you even get into that song? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. So it all goes back to when I was a kid. I was a dog when I was a kid. Like, peewee basketball, we had that rule where every third trip down the court, the girl had to shoot. Yeah. Well, the third, court, the third trip down the court ended up being the last possession of the game, and we were down one. So I passed this ball to this girl, and I'm like, "Just like, oh, you got to just lay it in, just throw it up there, like it'll go in." She missed it. And I came over and I spiked the ball off her leg and cussed her out. I'm like second grade. I'm like losing. My what a loser! Life. Yeah. Oh, it was worse than that. It, I got. I had to had to spend a little time talking to some people after that one, but but that's the way I am. Like I, I could not like. I played team sports, and because that was really all I knew. I swam when I was a kid, some of that stuff. But man, once I kind of found I'm in control of this beast, Mm -hmm. like it was. Then I could kind of harness the beast. But before that, man, I had I had real anger problems. We were playing a we were playing a soccer game, and uh, this kid. We were playing a reform school, Onita Baptist down in just over the line in Tennessee, and this kid uh, every time he kick the ball or whatever, he would take his cleat off and act like he was cleaning it out, and he'd smack one of our kids. And this kid was, I mean, he was completely weak-minded, like would never defend himself, nothing like that. So this kid just picking on him. And I'm wearing the captain's badge. So I go over to the ref, I'm like, this guy's hitting my kid in the head every single time. Like, can you just stop him? He's like, I don't see it, I don't see it. So I'm like, watch the next play, he kicks the ball, he's going to hit him. I'm, I just stop on the field and watch this thing happen. And he hits him again. So the ref doesn't see it. So I walked over to the ref, took my cleat off and hit him and said, you see that? And I cussed him like a streak too. I mean, that's how I was. Like, I just, I am not what you see now. And that's the the funny thing about my life is, dude, I had to fall hard to figure it out. Like I had to put the gun barrel in my mouth literally and figuratively to figure it out. And that was, you know, that was the best day of my life and the worst day of my life. You know, really, April twelfth, two thousand sixteen, changed the course of my life.
0: What happened to that? Like it that came... was
1: that was the the apex. So to kind of go back and then fast forward. Yeah. In two thousand fourteen, I injured myself in a competition. It was at the LA Staples Center. Hmm. Uh, I, got the, I got the video. Oh yeah, he, I think that's it. <laughs> oh yeah, it's uh, <laughs> but a but huge competition. Again, kind of the whole sports watching, but this is after I just won a world championship. Yeah. So I spent another couple of weeks in Australia when I was down there, came back through Mexico, partied like crazy down there, and, and you know, it was really just kind of like a month removed from, from competition level. It'd be like you picking up your bow, you know, after a month, you could do it. Yeah, but it's, it's not, not that be it's my not best. when you're dialed in, mm-hmm. right? So again, this guy, uh, Brandon Allen is his name, is really good guy. Uh, And a really good lifter, but I didn't know him at the time, you know, and he was an up and coming lifter and, um, he had challenged me to, to compete at this meet. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I just did this meet. I'm kind of enjoying myself. So he, uh, he kind of pushed Steve, the guy that runs the the federation to, to push me to compete, not push, but just like encourage. Right. Right. So it was like, Hey, we'll pay for your flight. We'll get your hotel. We'll do this. And I was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm out. Well, then he goes online like a month before and is like, well, I'm going to win the meet now because Brandon's not competing or something like that. I mean, it was like playful banter. But again, my mind switched. I'm like, no, we're going hard. So I had seminars lined up like Friday to, to Sunday every week because after that championship, I was booking as much that I could for those seminars. So that left my training like Monday to Thursday. And I was condensing, you know, eight, ten weeks of prep into four weeks condensed into half a week you know, so it was just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Go out there, compete, get hurt. And uh, literally the world fell apart because that was like my income was not lifting per se, but the peripheral, you mm-hmm. know, the, the sponsorships, the, the seminars and things like that. I had sponsors call me in the hospital while I was in recovery and leave me voicemails saying that we would resume uh contract once I was back on the platform. Like, that's how cutthroat shit is. I mean, I, you know that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I, what was the injury? Mm. So, I was under a squat. It was a squat I'd done dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of times. Um, 744 pounds. I squatted it on my first attempt. I went down and up, and I had a judge's infraction. So, I wasn't going to go... Too much more than that, but I was actually planning on going, a basic, again, on the numbers I perceived he could do. I was thinking 766, 771, something like that was going to be a good day for me. Um, and I'd squatted over 840 pounds at this point. So this was like, this was not upper echelon of my stuff. Right. Well, when you're not doing things at the upper echelon, like they say most rock climbers die when they're just traversing basic skills because they're not focused. They're just like, this is too easy. That was me. I had been wearing an Olympic-heeled shoe, like you know, a squat shoe. Yeah. And I went down, and I had a judge's infraction over a movement, and I felt a little bit off balance. The the platform I later learned was a little bit wobbly, so I thought it was me. Thought it was the shoes. Had a groin injury that was had actually happened when I was in Mexico stepping out of the ocean, and it kind of like sunk my foot and then pulled me back down, and you know, so felt a little something there, nothing bad. So I'm like west side we squat wide we squat in flats so i had my chuck taylor's there put those on widen my stance out to give myself a little bit of base a little stability because i felt unstable well i stabilized my body and destabilized my groin you know by widening my stance it destabilized the leg so when i started to go down the groin kind of like flinched well when you've got weight on your back and your knee turns 30 degrees inward it's not going to stop that train so it just kept turning So the left leg ended up being like if you took a chicken leg and just spiral fractured it off the bone. Mm. Um, My kneecap was maybe three to four inches up under the skin above my, my outer sweep of my quad. It had retracted so hard on the quad tendon. Doctors said, I don't even know how that's possible. But when they did, like you could see my kneecap literally just moving under the skin. He also said that the snap was so hard on the front side of the patella that it looked like a surgeon cut it. He was like, I don't know if I can replicate that cut. You know, it was so like, just completely shredded it perfectly. So that was a a spiral. It was everything. LCL, MCL, PCL, meniscus, whatever you can think of, it was gone. And then the right leg was a patella quad tendon. So it was a little, little less, but still terrible because you're not supposed to be able to tear opposing tendons. Mm. But I tore, I tore everything. So, and part of the problem was when I went down, I didn't fall straight over my knees. I kind of like spiraled to the side Mm. and that got some of that shearing and then also rolled my right ankle, sprained the hell out of it. The bar stayed on my back the whole time. And when it came off, it dislocated my right shoulder. So I'm down two knees, down a right ankle and down my right shoulder. And I'm in LA County Hospital, right? You got Stanford, you got UCLA miles away, but because it's trauma, they got to take me to this unit. I mean, how did everybody react at the at the, the shock? I mean, honestly, like I I know looking back on myself then, you know, I had that me against the world mentality. Like I, everybody was out to get me and whatever, but it was split. There were fifty percent of the people that were like, "Man, that is awful." Like I really like that guy, and then the other half was like, "Good, that's what he deserves." You know, and I didn't know where I stood, like did I get something I didn't deserve or did I get exactly what I deserved? Right. When I started getting real honest with myself, it was more like you got what you deserved from a karmic aspect. Right. Mm -hmm. So nevertheless, uh, that just began a series. I've had 19 surgeries on my left knee. Uh, all of that was condensed into four years. So really, you know, 14 to 16 is what we're talking about. January 14 to April 16 was two of the worst years of my life. And what people don't understand about those 19 surgeries that sounds bad enough in and of itself, right? Well, when you do the math, I was on my back four weeks every surgery. Mm. So it's 76 weeks yeah. out of four years that I was on my back. And primarily the first two years, that was the brunt of it. You know, I would get, I would literally get healthy, get back on my feet, and then a week later I'm back in the hospital, another infection. It was just infection after infection after infection. They had me at threshold levels of uh, some of the antibiotics I was taking. I had PICC lines multiple times. I realized I tried to <laughs> tried to off myself one time that I didn't know I was trying to off myself. I bought a dirt bike. Um, it was a KTM 252 stroke. Oh, yeah. I used to ride all the time, but like why? Like why am I buying this with nine? You know, at this point, probably eight, nine, ten surgeries on my knee, wanting to go fast, wanting to lose weight, wanting to do all this stuff. I go out and I literally jump it the first time, and I just table top it and shelf myself, totally like rolled myself. In a, in a knee brace, pick line in my arm. I'm sitting there laying in dirt. And I was like, that was stupid. But I got up and did it again. And I couldn't tell you why I did it again. But unless. Yeah. You really start thinking, man, I just didn't want to live. I didn't care. Because shortly thereafter is when I put the gun in my mouth. But the best thing that came from that, you know, I called my dad. And um, we were very, very strained at the time because of all the stuff I was talking about. You know, we were yeah. just very distant, not trying to make it worse than it is, but like, it wasn't normal. You know what I mean? So he comes in and he just kind of looked at me and I knew I I was in bad shape. You know, I'm just surgery after surgery. I've lost weight. They got me on so many pain pills. Like that was messing up my thinking. That was messing up how I looked. You know what I mean? Just not in a good place. He said, man, I should have told you every single day that I was proud of you and I love you. And I'm sorry that we got here. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, holy Mm -hmm. crap. My dad, just changed my universe because I thought I had to be this tough guy that was fighting the world because that's what men do. Right. <laughs> like I thought it was me against everybody and I'm out here on my own. You know, when I had to go up here to to lift and do that kind of stuff, nobody in my family came with me. You know, it's me against the wolves. That's, that's the kind of crap. Right. Did it take you, like, some time for your dad to come around like that? Or was that kind of like, in the- no dude, he, as soon as he saw me, it was that way. Like, my like I said, my dad is an awesome dude. Right, and like, yeah. What's the saying? When you're 16, your dad's an idiot. And when you're 30, your dad's the smartest man you ever yeah, met. Right. That's a lot of our story. You know, when I was younger, he was killing himself working. So I didn't get to know him like that. But as I've gotten to be a man and really just sat down and had conversations with him, not as, you know, not as my dad, but as, as David, you know, like that's a different level. Yeah. You know, both of them important, but different. And that was that was who was talking to me that day. And I think that was the buffer that he needed because I think if he was talking to me as his son, he couldn't have gotten the words out. You know what I mean? Right. So that's what I got from him was, man, you can say you're sorry. You can own that you made mistakes. You're not perfect. So that started to actually be like breathing room for myself because I was so intent on like, I've got to prove everyone wrong here. I've got to show everyone that all this effort and all this hurt and all this time was worth it. At that time, did you have a community of people around you, or did, were you kind of just by yourself? I had teammates, but I am the worst teammate ever. I mean, honestly, like I can say that about myself. I I push too hard. I don't give enough, you know, kind of thing. Like, I'll give you all I got, but it's never what you need because I'm just giving you what I want to give you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think I was looking back, I think I was a pretty poor teammate as far as like as much as I could have done. But from a strategy, from the percentages and some of the coaching stuff, I think I was great. So I would rather train with a guy who made me better that I wanted to fight every single day than a guy who made me feel good about myself and right, I stayed yeah. the same. So that's that's the way I coached. Even my athletes. Like I can remember one guy, he sent me a message and he's like, I want to be one of the best lifters in the world. And his first workout reply was, you know, well, I got to the gym late and I had to cut it short and I was like, We're done here. Like, you don't want to be the best in the world you know, and I'm not saying that you did the wrong thing. You lied to me on your questionnaire. You do not want to be the best in the world. So I held everybody to a standard that I held myself to right, yeah. And man, that's dangerous. (laughs) Because it's it's a it's a hard place for people to get to. And it's it's very hard for people to get close to that. You know what I mean? So yeah, I was very expectations are, are difficult yeah for sure it's
2: like I I don't I, I wasn't at that level but I always find myself putting expectations like if I do something and I've had to break myself with this like if I if I do something for you or if I give you something hmm. I would always have the expect like I expect that back from you yeah. yeah it's like you can't operate like that like just because I'm doing something I can't look at you and say you owe me now it's like no you don't owe me anything I I, I should just be able to do it and then if you do it back great but if not that's all right
0: right yeah yeah i I, I think those expectations as a teammate are great i think sometimes i think some sometimes it drives people around you to be better mm -hmm. you know just like michael jordan he was not a fun teammate Mm -hmm. you know but he demanded the same level of discipline by his teammates that he was putting in you know and like all those documentaries you look and they're like he was the worst like, I hated him, mm-hmm. you know, but he drove everybody to excellence because he demanded it, you know. Yeah, I think, so I think in certain scenarios it's a good thing.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, just, just an honest kind of, like, pedigree. You know, I was I was a student of the West Side System. I mean, the stories out of that place are legendary for how they treated people as far as, like, if you couldn't hack it, get out. Like, right. th- there's no second day if you can't make it the first, you know, kind of thing. So, again, all my coaches that I really relished and, and like, surpassed my own expectations under were the kind that grab you by the collar and get in your face and be like you're better than this boy like you can do better than this so i thrived on that yeah so being in that environment and powerlifting at a high level like everybody in here i'm looking around well the only competition i have at the competition is every guy in this room and they all want to kill me yeah you know so it's like when your training environment is literally your competition that that is a breeding ground for its own level of like Mental warfare, mm-hmm. you know, and that just gets to another level of exhaustion when you're talking about you're you're talking about lifting eleven hundred pounds on your back in a yeah. squat, and then everybody's just kind of like mad at each other, or pushing to beat each other, or whatever it is it just it's a weird environment where nobody's happy, but everybody's getting better it's weird, very very, very weird, so in that world just like moving that amount of weight and guys like we were, we were
2: watching videos of you earlier Just mm-hmm. you look a different person. Yeah. Like I didn't even recognize that that was you. <laughs> um, I'm just going to ask are steroids, like is steroids a thing there? Is it? Oh, for sure. And the is, reason, it, is it a necessary evil? I guess.
1: No, I mean, there's avenues under the sun to, to compete, non-test or to, to, to compete tested. You can have a very stringent drug testing, like the IPF, the USP, USPL, USAPL. Um, but anyway, they, they have their own federation, and it's huge. It does very well. Uh, what I think people realize or don't realize, so in my situation, for example, I did a competition, and uh, it was one of the first competitions I did, I happened to set a record, and they t- they did the like a little dip test for your urine, and it was like if you have a 6 to 1 um, testosterone to estrogen ratio, it'll register a different color. So if you're under 6 to 1, you're good. If you're over 6 to 1, you're high. So I, I'm, I'm like 19 years old. I had uh like I had some whey protein, some creatine and stuff. And my dad actually made me throw it out. I was home from college and I had to throw away supplements because they thought they were steroids. So <laughs> I was not on steroids, <laughs> not at all. But this test said I was, and uh, i had squ- I was 19 years old. I was 219, and I squatted 660, bench 440, and deadlifted 670. Good gosh, dude. Yeah, at so 19. 19, and um, so that disquelt like discredited my lifts and it was it was put like in uh I don't know it's called powerlifting usa but it was like disqualified and like failed drug tests so I'm 19 years old having done one of my first powerlifting meets and I think every eye that reads that magazine is like scanning that to be like what did Brandon Lilly do like that's how you know I kind of had that like visions of grandeur about about everything I've ever done I wanted to do the to be the best yeah So I thought people would like see that and I was embarrassed. So I was like, well, I'll show them. And it just, it started right after that. And to be honest with you, um, when, when I was at the end of my career, I saw a lot of what I would just be like internet driven abuse, Mm -hmm. like people just talking about numbers casually that of dosages that they take, not realizing that if like, if you tell me what release to use, I'm going to buy that release. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Why? Because yeah. he's the best in the world at it. Right. So if you have, if you look up to someone, or they they have a physique that you want, or they're strong as you want to be, or whatever. Obviously, if they say, "Well, I do this," you know, you write it down and you go do that. And that was the thing that I think got really out of hand because, just like anything, it's an arms race. Mm-hmm. Like, well, if he's doing that, well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do a little bit more. One up it. And the the numbers relative to what I did got so out of control. Now I'm not going to sit here and tell you that towards the end, like 12 week cycle, 10 of it looks like TRT, honestly, mm-hmm. like maybe TRT 2.0, right? Very, very basic, very straightforward. You want to keep your body balanced. Like you, you don't want to have these extremes. Mm. What you want is maximum level of balance at an extreme, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So the more good stuff you do, the more counteractive stuff you have to do. And what what you end up with is kind of a, Pretty pretty rank soup at that point. So I always thought less is more, stay within those boundaries. And I asked my first coach that helped me with that stuff, I said, how long do I do this amount? And he said, until it stops working. And that was it. Like, it never stopped working. So we just barely, like, slowly crept the number forward to where, to what I'm taking now on TRT, I was at or just below two times what I'm taking right now at my highest, at the ends of competition, I was five to six times what I take right now. Mm -hmm. But it was kind of a ramp up just for the event. I know that there were guys, and this is not an accusation, this is not me saying negatively of them, I'm just saying, I think it's a problem that evolved because of the internet and people playing that arms race. Guys were cruising on four times what TRT is, five times what TRT is. And that's really, it's not a functional thing. So what people don't understand your body can only process and assimilate so much of that stuff, right? So if, if you're feeding it protein, really all a steroid anabolic does really well is help you synthesize recovery through protein synthesis, right? So you have to eat the food. You have to train to stimulate and break down the muscle. The steroids and the anabolics obviously help with that. They don't just make you stronger for no reason, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like if you took them and did nothing, you would get stronger a little bit, but if you, do something with that the mechanism works better it's not just strength because mm. you want to get stronger it is strength because it allows you to become stronger by building a muscle through protein synthesis that can be strengthened so that was that was always my angle on it was like this more of this isn't going to make me better more discipline with the little bit i'm taking is going to make me better eat the protein you're supposed to eat eat the calories you're supposed to eat you know whatever you got to do just utilize it and you won't need more. You know. I feel like it covers a lot of mistakes. Like you can eat really sure. really poorly and take more and then curb that. Right. You know, so I tried to I mean, I definitely had those days too, but I tried to get for the most part, I tried to eat really really good and and train really really hard. So not saying my use is any different than anyone else's. I just that was my values around it. Was use the least that you have to to get better.
0: Right. Did you so after your injury In like the four-year span of the surgeries and everything, was there ever were you
1: planning on going back, or did you know it was over? Oh, dude, (laughs) this is how stupid I am. So the day (laughs) the the day I had the surgery, and maybe it was just the 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 fact of my surroundings at L.A. County Medical Center, but when I get triaged in there, um, there's a woman with a gunshot hole in her face and her boyfriend's handcuffed to the rail, and they're in the, the triage with me arguing still. He shot her in the face, and he's handcuffed to the rail. That that was my surroundings there. So Jeez. cool story. Do you remember way back the guy at USC that dropped the bench press bar on his throat? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the guy that did that kid's surgery walks in and is like, oh, I'm volunteering time at the L.A. County Medical Hospital. He's like a very, very world-renowned surgeon. He's actually a hand specialist, and that's why they brought him in on that because they said um, hand specialists have the most intricate – detailed, uh, really? requirements as a surgeon. I mean, I'm sure like he, he his people said that, but I'm sure somebody on their brain or on the heart, they're, they're mad at me for saying that, but nevertheless, it's a very intricate surgeon. Mm-hmm. So he actually comes in and jokes with me. He goes, I'm gonna go read a medical book on how to do knee surgery. I'll be back in an hour and we'll get you cut up, <laughs> you know? But, um, so he was, he was Chinese and there was a very, 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 very hard, uh, language barrier there. Like yeah. it was, it was English to a level that I could not comprehend. Okay. And I'm not saying that callously. I'm just saying that to to tell the rest of the story, the rest of my nursing staff was Hispanic. So that was a language barrier of its own Chinese to to Spanish, Spanish to English, Chinese to English. I was given mismedications. I was given things that could have like really given me complications being mixed together because the nothing there, I mean, it's a County hospital in LA. Like it's, it's Turdsville. Like let's be Are you there by yourself? Or do yeah. you have people like, no. like your your dad or your No. No, no. Just, you're there no, by yourself. No. This is pre this is like before anything got good. So this is like rock bottom days, even though I'm still on top, right? And that's when it became really really clear. I had a business partner that came around and brought me some stuff and without that I would have been in really bad shape. So the first night I'm at I'm at the nurse's station. They they don't even have a room for me. They just have like a curtain pulled around me at the nurse's station. The next night they put me in a room in an oxygen unit upstairs that's for like premature children. So, and they forget about me. Well, there's no call button for pain meds. The phone doesn't work and I can't walk. But throughout the course of all this stuff going on, whenever I had the surgery, the surgeon looked at me and he was like, I said, you know, of course, am I ever going to be able to do this again? Right? He said, you'll be lucky to walk inside 10 months. Well, like a bolt of lightning seven, eight minutes after that, I get a text message from a guy in Australia and he was like, Hey mate, if you're up and around you can make it love to have you down, even as a guest, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I'm lifting. Cause it was 10 months to the day that I fell. And that doctor told me I wouldn't walk for 10 months. So I went down there in 10 months to the day, three surgeries later, squatted 661 bench 540 something (laughs) and deadlifted seven something. Are you kidding me? No, three months, three months to the day. I went back to Mark Bell's meet. I squatted 111, <laughs> I benched 500, and I pulled 711 to G's and Hustles by Snoop Dogg. And at the end of it, I was talking so much trash, telling everybody <laughs> I'm coming back. You can't stop me, can't whoop me, nothing. I was just running my mouth. But it was, uh, yeah, man, I, had, I was like, but it was fear. Like, it was yeah. totally fear because it was like I saw how quickly I was forgotten. Yeah. And, dude, when that was put in my face, and I'm like, I don't know where my next payment comes from. I don't know where this comes from. I don't know where this comes from. Mm-hmm. So it got scary quick. So it was like, I got to compete. And my doctor's like, are you are you out of your mind? Like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm just going to go squat 100 pounds and pull 700. He's like, you're crazy. To the point that I had a straight cast on one time. And uh, they left the knee open, like kind of like a little oval in the knee. So I deadlifted 500 pounds straight legged and shot sebaceous fluid. Like seven, eight feet across the gym because the pressure in my knee built up so much through that lift. I was training (sighs) so hard. I had like the little scab on the tip of my knee and it popped off and then just fluid just started shooting out of my knee. That's how crazy. But it was all like looking back at it. I can laugh now. Dude, I was scared to death. I was literally scared to death. I didn't know what I was going to do and I was not good at anything else. Like you had no plan B. Never.
0: Yeah. That's no, it's so funny. We talked about that last night with it on a different podcast. It's just such a consistent thing with people that are just great. The best at what they do.
1: They just don't have any other option, but to be great at it. Well, I know? think it's, I think it's belief in self too. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm telling you, I I followed my gut and that's really in my job. Even that's where a lot of my stuff revolves around is my gut feeling on things or on people. That's a good arrow for me. Like I follow that compass. So, you know, when I'm looking at at myself, like, jeez, that all the things that I've done, when you write them down, I'm like, man, I can't believe I did that. Yeah. No, I absolutely believe every bit of it. Yeah. You know, because I never thought I couldn't, and that's what I was saying when I when I first got a street bike, I'm skinnying down to like 170 by. An, Racing leathers and wanting to turn corners and you know drag my knees, right? Yeah, that kind of thing. I just never wanted to do something like. Why am I going to give you all my time to suck? Right. Yeah. You know, like I, oh, I, I don't mind sucking at things like jujitsu. I'm terrible at jujitsu, but I'm a lot better than I was. And as long as I can see that progress and right. chase progression, great. But if if you give me a Rubik's cube. Like yeah, your kid was doing yeah. i'm just gonna sit there mad for a while because i've tried for 42 years to figure one of those out and i've never done it so, i can't do it either i told him <laughs> he's trying to teach
0: me and i'm like you just give up bud yeah like, i don't have whatever it takes it,
1: that's what i'm saying so it's like i i can assess pretty quickly when when it's not going to go very far but when i'm when i'm into something and i can see mm-hmm. that i can progress at it i'm dedicated i'm, I'm almost loyal to it yeah all. like i, I don't give up on
0: things yeah so you truly like you you knew you were gonna get it like when you did lifts, you
1: like I you believed it that much. why why would I ever see a lot of guys trained to failure yeah and again I miss lifts don't don't misread me on that I trained to not fail right yeah in the gym so when I get under a lift at the meet and it's like man I was supposed to do three in this workout but I was able to get four I was supposed to do four here but you know I got four and that was perfect you build this confidence, and it's like when you get to your meet, and it's all mathematics. At the meet, everything is kind of like retro engineered to day one of your program to equal out to what you want to squat at the yeah. meet. Very, very mathematic. And if this adds up, and this adds up, and this adds up, well, that's a that's a no brainer. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of situation I was in. Was like I I created a training space for myself where I was going to be pushing at the threshold tiptoeing over the edge and we were going to find the edge of the competition yeah you know
0: yeah i think that is the winning recipe though like it's such a and it's like we this podcast is an animal mindset that is it like when you are competing or do whatever you do it's not trying not to miss right it's trying to hit mm-hmm. and so like in what i do where people mess up is they start trying to protect and try to not miss what they're aiming at mm-hmm. instead of focusing on how to hit it yeah you know and I just see so many this is so cool to see it applied in so many different different things even even powerlifting.
1: yeah well I think you're going to find that I mean one of the things that I did and kind of found through this was was veteran outreach working with guys that were transitioning back and you know a lot of guys have been blown up a lot lot of guys had career-ending injuries and whatnot so that was my way of serving the military not serving in the military but serving the military these guys that were coming out coming home like Hey, thanks for 20 years of service. Sorry about your leg and go work at home Depot for 15 bucks. Right. So I got involved with the special forces foundation, the recon sniper foundation started doing some stuff, talking to those guys about like, man, I was literally on top of the world. Number one fell in a competition and you know, out of the sport in a few years. Like I get what you're going through, but I don't know what you're going through. Yeah. And I don't know if it was the buffer of me not being in the military or just the fact that I'd worked with the military in different regards as a strength coach. But man, wall after wall, these dudes just started talking to me and those organizations started seeing some of that and were like, well, Hey, come back, you know, talk to more guys. And I stayed in contact with more guys. So that really became a kind of a therapeutic thing for me myself because it's like one, okay, I've done some really terrible stuff in my life, but two, everybody's got something. Right. Everybody's got stuff. And when I started meeting men that I looked at and I thought, man, you're a good person. You just made some mistakes. Well, you sing that song long enough honestly to other people. You have to turn it around on yourself at some Mm -hmm. point. So I started trying to forgive myself, started trying to dissect my life a little more honestly, not like you're a piece of shit, you know, but more like how did you become a piece of shit? You know, how did you make these poor decisions? How did you turn your back on your Do Did wrist? you have anything help you along that journey? Oh, for sure. I mean, it depends on how deep you want to go. But, I mean, it it really just started probably from the point where I was at absolute zero. You know, putting a pistol in your mouth. Like, how did I get here? And the answer to that was a thousand bad decisions. Like, that's the, that's the thought that came in my head. Like, a thousand bad decisions put you here. Well, a thousand one good decisions will get you out. So that was the genesis, like on my lowest point, that was what I kept thinking to myself, make a thousand and one good decisions and you'll get out of this hole. So it was a plus one. That's where that mentality, that's where that saying, that's where that thought process came from because nobody wakes up, oh man, I want to go be a heroin addict today. Right. They lose their job. Their job stresses them out. They they lose the money. The, The spouse gets mad or leaves or whatever. Dude's having a bad night. He gets drunk, maybe hooks up with a hooker. She's got... Heroin, and now he's doing heroin. Like that's that's a real life story. That's that's a story that's been told to me by people. You Mm -hmm. know, so like my story wasn't that deep, but I had my own problems. I had my own holes that I dug by choosing poorly, and I could start retracting myself or retracing my steps and being like, "Man, if I'd have just done this, yeah," and I knew better every single time. And that was it. It Was like, am I just stupid that I just (laughs) like cut off my nose to spite my own face all the time here? But. Start choosing better. And that's really what it came down to. Like, is this the best thing that I can drink right now? Or is it an ice cold beer? Well, it's the water. I choose the beer, but I'm going to drink the water. You know, like stupid stuff like that. But I had to make my life because I was, I felt so internally out of control. I had to make that about every decision. And then when I became super regimented, then like had to, yeah. I mean, you had to, when it's like, if you're trying to, if you're trying to corral a bull, you don't expand the fences; you bring them in, yeah. right? And that's exactly how I was with my behavior. Was my behavior had no limits, no bounds? Because, as the big bad power lifter that was tattooed and strong and winning meets, well, the night after the meet, let's go party and hang out and drink beers and do this. Well, I got to be that guy, and then I got to be this guy, and I got to be this guy. Had a friend of mine who's actually a psychology professor asked me one time, he was like, "Why'd you get all the tattoos? What do they what do they mean?" I started telling him, and he's like, "It says it sounds like a lot of pain." I said, yeah, they're all tied to, like, bad memories and sad times and stuff. And he was like, do you ever think that you're literally wearing a jacket of pain and you're, like, trying to just hide yourself and cloak yourself in pain? And I was like, what? (laughs) But I was because that was the things that got me mad, that got me driven to do the things because, man, I can see these two roses and I know the people that I lost. I can see these two roses and I know the two years of my life that I lost you know like i can see those things and i can get visceral anger from those things so it's like not only was my life that but i was memorializing those things on my body you know so it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird trip to get to whenever you realize man i was just i was bringing those fences do you do you regret that or do you look at that now as like a like you kind of like a reminder of where you came from (laughs) no it's it's definitely dude i love my tattoos like i I absolutely love every one of them and i've I've kind of made peace with those memories too because going through back through this stuff instead of being sad or mad that people are gone it's like damn i had people for 30 years of my life that were awesome yeah you know and it's just perspective looking at but a lot of that came um through, I did some mushroom trips, I did some DMT, I did some ayahuasca, did a lot of those things. And I did them. And I and I really used to talk about them more openly. And I've been more cautious of it, because it's almost become kind of like trendy. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's talking about it that way. Man, I firmly believe that um, if you if you do it for a reason, it, it kind of adapts to whatever place you are in your head. Um, like if you just want to go have fun, music's going to sound good. Food's going to taste good. But I think if you just do it haphazardly, you can get a lot of what you don't want. Mm -hmm. Cause I've had some of my first trips that I did were just kind of experimental by myself. And that's where Promontory came from. So it's funny that we came full circle on this. So last of the Mohicans when I was a kid was like a really, really impactful movie to me. Like I loved it so much, like watched it every day. But I watched it, and every night I would have nightmares of Mangla, the Indian, you know, like I was yeah. terrified of him, terrified, so when I did my first mushroom trip, <laughs> so I'm laying here on this floor. the carpet is actually a little more shag than this, it's kind of a tall shag, yeah, I got French doors behind me, and I'm laying here, and I mean, I didn't know how much I took, I just took everything I had as far as the mushrooms, and it was a lot so I'm like, I'm, like, I'm like stratosphere right but I'm laying there and this I'm like very seriously like I just thought to myself man this this like my heart's racing right now because I can feel it like I can tell you what that apartment smelled like I know exactly what the carpet felt like it's funny how that works it's like super intensely burned into your brain but I started making this snow angel in the carpet and I was like oh my god that feels so good and it started to like come up and cocoon around me so I'm looking at the moon and stars out the French door, like just, you know, mystified by the whole universe at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I've got like a carpet cocoon wrapped around me. Well, I'm laying on the floor, butt naked. Yeah. I I'd laid down in a towel. I took them and went in the shower and I kind of laid on the floor, but I'd wiggled my way out of this towel. So I'm butt naked laying on the floor. And on uh shrooms. On shrooms, <laughs> just chilling by myself. Living but, life. Third story. So uh I'm laying there and end up kind of looking out the window and in my head, it was like I lifted towards space, but I was stuck between like, I was at ozone. I was looking down at blue sky below and black space above this stardust cloud comes over and it's four horseback Indians and Magua is in the middle. And dude, I'm talking like if it, if it was God's face, it would have felt that like, look at me. I am talking to you right to your soul, kind of thing. He comes up to me and he's got this bloody handprint on his face. And he's like, You've lost your warrior spirit. You've lost your way. You don't know where you're going. You have no direction. He said, Go below to find above and hit me in the face with that bloody hand. Dude, I went a thousand feet under the ocean in my head. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, I don't know which way I'm swimming. I, it feels like i'm going up but i'm only going down feels like i'm losing air like i'm suffocating i wasn't say are you panicking oh my god dude like yeah. out of control and i can feel it right now so finally i get my orientation and i see this little pinhole of light i'm swimming i'm swimming 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 not getting any bigger and i'm i can still feel myself holding my breath like i think i'm going to die and it's like you have to know you're going to die So I kept swimming, swimming, swimming. And when I stopped trying so hard, when I stopped trying to swim, and I'm just like, I can't. Everything blew up. I'm in a field. Everything is like the brightest, most beautiful color you've ever seen in your life. Like, more intense and beautiful than you can even – like, the colors smelled. They were so good. Like, whatever – like, yellow was like banana nut bread. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it was that good. Yeah. But I was black. I was black – as Cole, had no facial features, had no nothing. I was just a silhouette of this big man, right? Walking through the fields like gladiator almost, like just can't believe this is real, like what's going on? And as soon as I kind of just knelt down and was like, I'm not gonna walk anywhere, I'm just gonna sit here for a minute, I became colorful. I became like a part of that. And that was my whole life. Like I was always trying so hard to get somewhere that I thought I should be, When I stopped, I found out exactly where I was. Yeah, just kind of be in the moment. Yeah, and that sounds so silly and cliche, but, dude, that rocked me. Like, it rocked me to my core. Right. You know, so shortly after that, I made some some good decisions, some business decisions that that paid off and kind of got me back on track. So I kind of shied away from that stuff for a little bit. But then, I don't know, around 17, 18, 19, kind of got back into it more of like, okay, I'm in a good place now. What can the benefit of this be? And, you know, I've done it a few times since. And every time I figure out a little bit more about myself, I leave with questions to ask myself. But, you know, I think it it just showed me a side of myself in ways that words couldn't say mm-hmm. or a movie couldn't make you feel. Like, yeah. it had to take me through this place where I felt like I was drowning. I've heard some crazy stories about yeah. some of those journeys, too. Just like,
2: and to your point, it was, it was all dependent on the headspace. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've had some really bad. So ones. bad that yeah. it's like it's you're in a bad headspace. But when you're you're in a good one, it's been like the most incredible like self you know finding event of their life.
1: Yeah, it. Um, I definitely say when you're when you're in a better place, you're kind of going the right direction. You get a lot more of that love type message. You know, like that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not trying to glamorize or make this sound like the cool thing to do. Like that, I was I was at the verge of not wanting right. to live. Yeah, yeah. And to change to say one thing too, so so if anybody out there has ever listened to this and you're in that space of not wanting to live, ask yourself: Is that the question, or is it, do you not want to live like this? Right. And that was my answer. Mm -hmm. I wanted to live because when I put, I mean, dude, I was ready. Like I'd made my mind up, but I couldn't do it because I was like, I don't want to do this. So I just need to stop living in a way that's making me feel like. Was there ever
0: a time, like, during that, that like, growing up or during your struggle, did you have, like, faith? Like, or was that something that came along? Because I know me and you talked about that a little Man, bit. it's, uh,
1: I have a very, I have a very inter- interesting relationship with God and spirituality. Um, I think growing up, I was probably exposed, like, so many people to, I mean, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. It was, like, everything you did was putting you in hell. Like right. every single thing was going to send you to hell. Mm-hmm. So I kind of resisted that, but there was an incident with a teacher that kind of accused me of being a part of some just boys will be boys trouble stuff, you know, and really it's nothing, but I just don't want to say anymore because of her and the place. And mm-hmm. my mom, It's small town yeah, yeah. stuff. So nevertheless, um, it's so it's such a silly thing, but man, it changed the whole direction of my life because she came in and she told my mom that I had done this thing and my mom, just like as any mom would do, she's like, "I can't believe you did that. I'm so embarrassed, dude." When my mom said that to me, it broke my heart. Yeah, like I thought I'd let her down in front of God. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like I, and even though I was, I didn't do it. I was begging her to believe me, and she's like, "No, you're just a little liar." You know, like that kind of thing. And she was just mad, embarrassed, yeah, yeah. whatever. But dude, it it stuck with me. So I started realizing that, like, look, don't tell them the truth. Just tell them what they want to hear. You know, and yeah. that that became. Kind of my mo with my mom and dad, was like, yeah, I'm not going to my friend's house. I'm just going to go to bed. Five minutes later, I'm out the window, kind of thing. But my granny, man, she was rock solid. Like, she never really just sat and ha- you know, like, hemmed and hawed on the Bible a lot. But she she threw out a Bible verse here and there or whatever. But she always wore a cross necklace and she lived. Like if if I could tell somebody how to live, live like that woman. Mm-hmm. But she modeled that after God and she modeled that after the Bible and and living in a way that was humble and kind and loving. So I got good doses of, of what I perceived as God through my granny, through my nana, through my papa, like people like that. But I, because of my own feelings about church did not revisit that for years and years and years through some of this stuff. um, You know, when I started getting out in nature, that's where I started to feel connected to God was like, you don't, you don't need necessarily. I knew the Bible. I'd read the Quran, I'd read books on Hinduism and on Buddhism. So I'd really tried to find an answer that would kind of like calm this storm. You know what I mean? And for me, I, I go out in the woods and it's like, you're just forced to see the things that work in harmony and balance and those kind of things. And that's where, you know, I do talk to God in that situation. I do talk to God in a way that allows me to connect with all that I'm in. And it really does become like my form of God is a is a biblical God. My form of God is the Father of Jesus Christ. Like that is that is the way that I was raised. That is the way that I think. But you know, it was um it took a lot of years to kind of figure out how it would work for me in a way that made sense because it wasn't getting screamed at from the pulpit. You know what I mean? And, you know, I I still struggle so hard sometimes with like how can all this stuff happen on this earth? Mm -hmm. If this is, if this is divine intervention or divine design, you know, we need a divine intervention. Like, how can this be going on? So that's one of my things that I struggle with. And I admire, you know, that you like you guys forefront of your existence is your faith, you know? And I admire that because it's like, as much as I feel and as much as I, you know, have searched and looked, it's like, I juggle that so hard still. Like I feel very, very connected, very, very convinced sometimes, and then the other side of me that just questions everything is like, why do these things happen? Why I think do that's these... a natural thing. Oh, I, I you know for what
0: sure. I, I mean, I if you don't, if you say you'd never question anything, hundred percent. But like, faith has been a huge part of my life, and and I've you know never. I, obviously, we, I have struggles, but we've had different struggles. Yeah. You know, um, but I mean, I could tear up right now thinking about it. just like how like a personal relationship with Jesus Christ for me has been like what got me through everything. Mm. Right. And so it's, it is a struggle because there's so many unanswered things here on earth. And it's like, how, how do I explain that to somebody? Or how do I even understand it myself where you watch terrible things happen to little kids or just terrible things happen to good people. And it's like, there's no way that we can understand like the plan. Yeah. You know, it's no way because it doesn't make sense to us. You know, like how can this happen? Course, but it's like, like...
2: Maggie work. My, my wife's a pediatric oncology nurse, and you know, every, every other week I feel like she's coming home like there's a two year old that just died of mm-hmm. cancer, yeah. or you know, she came home last week. I was on the road, and they got news that this little nine year old little girl was gonna was gonna be dying. Yeah, she hadn't accepted it yet her parent. Yeah. I, was t- I was telling him like, God, they got to get her out of yeah. This. That's like, oh, and it's, you yeah, think about yeah. things like that because I'm, I'm 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 with like I'm. Super strong in my faith, and I know. But then I, I say it's natural because I want people to know, like, it's it's part of it of yeah. looking at that, and being like, "Gosh, how well, can this but, happen?" But I don't think we can. To your point, there's no way we can understand the dynamic of of really.
0: Yeah, and we grew, and I grew up the same way, where you yeah. felt like, you know, to have a relationship with Jesus or to be saved to have faith you had to be perfect mm-hmm. you know almost like yeah. if you listen to country music you're going to hell if you <laughs> if you drink a beer you're going to hell and and it's like once you got older it's like man that's that's your own convictions that were thrown on everybody else right mm-hmm. and it's like i think you have personal convictions things that people struggle with and um and like that might be your conviction or like even in the bible because like, my dad has been and my mom were like a rock in, in faith like. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in that, and I knew the Bible, but it didn't mean I didn't have questions. And I didn't get saved or accept Jesus in my life until I was later, grown, mm-hmm. in my 20s, and I sat in a church my whole life. But I still didn't have that personal relationship, and I still was just turmoil in my head, and in my, I had no peace in my life. And I didn't really have it at all until, you know, finally I had broke down and just surrendered my life, not to be perfect, because mm-hmm. I'm far from it. But I just surrendered my life to say, you can have it. And like, you have to die daily because I still struggle with temptations and wanting attention and all the stupid things. It's like, God, take this away from me. You know, yeah. like, t- why do I still struggle with this stuff, these, these like human nature stuff? I just don't want it. Right. I, but I still, like, every day I have to face it. And some days it gets me. You know, and I was like, I'm sorry. And then I, I'm the type of person who wants to take the wheel, like take control. Mm, yeah. I want to I drive my own life here. And then when I need you, I'll go, I'll reach out. And he's, he's just always like, hey, reel me back in. And it's like, you need me every day, you know, and that's my relationship with him. And it's just been, um, uh, you know, I am very humbled and the way I am because I know how imperfect I am. Right. I'm like, I am so far from perfect. The things that go through my head, and like how it's just almost like God I don't deserve anything, you know. Right. Then that's the way I feel. But I think also the devil is a liar, you know, and he'll try to discourage you so many ways,
1: you yeah. know. Well, I think the, you know, I think the world itself is, is becoming a form of the devil. I mean, it, oh, yeah. In the sense that everything is just modeled around. The idea of, oh, it's all about making you feel good. It's all about right here and right now. There's no delayed gratification. It's all just feel, 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 mm-hmm. feel, feel. And to equate that to something else that, I, that I'm trying to understand but I love very much is jiu-jitsu. And a friend of mine who's an instructor, Mitch McElroy, he has a saying, I want to create a primal reaction to my martial maneuver. Yeah. So the thing about that is I think we as people, if we always defaulted to the primal, well, yeah we're gonna be drunks and we're gonna have mm-hmm. endless sex and we're gonna fall apart at the seams you know like that's that's proven the the yeah. societies that fall to that to the lowest form of what a human can be they fall I think that's where it's like a martial spirituality where that is that is a choice that is an awareness that is a decision that I am going to choose opposite of what mm-hmm. my gut tells me or what my heart is telling me or whatever it's like just because those things are telling you yeah you probably would feel better if you went and had the cheeseburger. Well, you probably would feel better if you went and had sex with ten women every The blueberry month, muffin, you know? like oh, it was good. You just put it. You put whatever thing in front of there, like whatever your vice or your desire yeah. is. Of course, it's going to feel better than not, right? Be. You know, I think
2: I mean? if you look to your point, it's like you keep seeing things that weren't normal. Yeah, it just slowly becomes more Dude, it's not and slow more. Anymore. Anymore. Like, and but now we're at a place where it's just like
0: well, what used to hide in, in the shadows is walking around the broad daylight now.
1: Yeah, it, it's and like, everybody's cool with it. Yeah. So let me ask you this, guys. From from another faith based question here, I've read Revelations from a from a research study level, okay, mm-hmm. uh, and I do not claim to be a master about. It. I just wrote a couple right, of yeah. papers about it. Yeah. But some of the predictive things, you know, the climate stuff, the unrest, the the wars, and th- things like that. Yeah. What do you guys take on that from a faith standpoint, and then to remove the faith standpoint, just as a person watching the world, kind of as it is standpoint. Right.
0: Uh, it is
1: i think i operate
2: just like you know and uh, and to go back to the point i haven't i, I grew up the exact same way all did yeah and then i went to a christian private school and played football and it was like church on tuesday church on thursday yeah to the point where i got to the place where it's like i don't want nothing to do with this right i'm right. done with it i don't want to hear about it i go home you know they'd be like let's go to church no i'm out i'm good mm-hmm. i don't want it and can't kids my wife and my kids kind of transition me back over of like i got to I got to be right. a good leader in my home, and there's only one way to do that. But since then, I've tried to ad- adopt this. Like everything around us is is not great in the way direction it's going. But it's like to say when God's going to come back, nobody really knows. There are all these predictive yeah. things, and it's like I just want to live in a way of like whenever it happens, let's be, be go be ready. Yeah,
0: but it's like it, I agree. Like it looks, and and it is crazy how the Bible like prophesies all the things yeah. that it's like wow, thousands of years ago. It's like look, none of it is wrong, right? It's like what more? You do know, you there need? is no controversial things. It's like right, that ain't happened. It's like it could come back right now, and it's it's like it could happen, you know. Yeah. But it's also a thing where since I was five years old, it's gonna, it's, it's the end time, yeah, hundred yeah. percent, you know. But I think what it is it just steadily gets worse with every generation. But what is what does it look like if we go another fifty years or a hundred years? Like eventually, the human race cannot sustain. The the direction we're headed.
1: Did you did you ever hear about Universe Twenty Five? Have You ever heard of that? Uh huh. It's a it's a pretty unique study that they did on on a colony of mice, and uh, they basically took three hundred mice and put them in this like society, and then they they bred and bred, and over time, these things and these changes in the in the mice started to happen to where, I mean, I don't even want to say this stuff because yeah. so it parallels say society it. just yeah. so much today to where some of the females were bullying certain, like the alpha males, like this situation happened where the women would bully, the female rats would bully the alpha male rats, the dominant rats, and only breed with the lesser males. Like they somehow switched this thing in there. You should look into it. It's really interesting, really confusing, but it's like if mice follow this program and these people understood what mice would do, and you start looking at who did the funding for this stuff and figure out when it was done... They were planning to, to I think to kind of convince people to follow some of these norms that were in this practice because marketing, which is as we all know we're involved in mm-hmm. marketing you're trying to lead people hopefully to something good, but how easy are people to lead if you have the right song and dance and ill intention yeah, and it's weak. the easiest and people are weak sex, drugs, rock and roll, you make yeah. those things a part of your product, you're going to sell it every day,
0: yeah no i definitely i didn't know the name of it but i'd heard of that study for sure yeah. and it's it's scary dude i mean it is and it's very it mirrors what we are seeing mm-hmm. so much in our in our society but you know i think it's another thing where like if you watch the news which i don't or if you literally just see everything goes on around you can get in a bad place
1: quickly oh for sure i have to yeah. i have to be clear of it just because i am a feeler i'm am a I'm a person that thinks yeah. and feels a lot so I I dwell on stuff, man. Like I get fired up, like, let's go do something about this. Well, I can't do anything about this. Nobody else will do anything about yeah. this. Then I, I quit watching at... it. I quit watching it all together. Oh,
0: same. Yeah, I I can't because when I live in my world with my family, my friends, in the outdoors, like, obviously, like, you don't see it and you don't live in that negative bubble all the time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we have to be real if World War Three happens and all of a sudden there's a war going on in union town here it's like okay i'm not going to go for a walk with my kids i've got to fight you know yeah. But i'm saying i'm not going to sit and watch people that just want us to hate each other all day long and they're right. constantly trying to distract you from something over here it's like all smoke and mirrors and i don't trust any of them anymore that's
1: the thing is you, it's so hard to to have any qualitative ground underneath yeah. your feet as to what to believe on that front like for sure that's why you have to start believing like what do you believe for yourself yeah. what do i define for myself, mm-hmm. my family, my friends, my people like yeah. that's what's really starting to matter and i think people are shifting back to that. I, I do, agree. i really do because some of the conversations i've had have been heartbreaking, tough, but we've got some good conversations happening too like people are getting motivated, people are starting to like yeah, tune that stuff out and do their own thing. So, i think it's good.
0: Well, Dude, I I could, we could sit here and talk to you about, I want to, like, I want to have you back. I know, like, you got a long day planned, so do we, but I want to talk to you on the next one about the cube method. Yep. I want to talk to you about nutrition. I want to talk to you about hunting. We didn't get to get into any of that stuff today, (laughs) man, but I mean, we could literally make this a two-part series and have Brandon Lilly back
1: on the podcast. (laughs) Well, I hope it was good. I mean, like, I kind of rambled about myself.
0: Dude, I've enjoyed it. I didn't say much, but, like, you're a very interesting, genuine guy that I have just, like, Really admired since the beginning, since we met, because there's not many r- real people, yeah. you know, that are just lay it all out there. This is me. Everybody's a highlight reel. Yeah.
1: And I've always appreciated that about you, so. Well, I hope they like the dirty junkyard dog for a highlight reel because that's me. I'm just holding on for dear life. No, man, I, I appreciate it, and thank you so much for coming, dude. Oh, dude, I wouldn't miss it. And really, thank you for the doors you've opened for me, man. And and really, you too, Joe. Like, I mean, just the people that you guys have helped me meet and things, It's it's been awesome.
0: No, so, we got more ahead. Uh, yeah. Awesome.